Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Today, I am thrilled to have Rabbi John Jaffet, someone I've actually known for over a decade, one of the legends, the rookie legends, if you would, in the, in the outreach world, someone that when I was in yeshiva and I was starting to work, there was this guy that was coming that was leading all these students from Canada. It's like, who is this guy? How old is this guy? And, uh, you know, it's, that was 10 years ago, believe it or not. And he is now the director of Or Sameach uh, of Toronto, the campus division, and rocking out at nine schools out there. So uh, Rabbi Jaffet, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rabbi Rupp. How you doing? Fantastic. Um, I, so I wanted to ask you first and foremost, at what point did you feel drawn to go into serving the Jewish people on a professional or, you know, on a, on a, on a deeper or more profound level? Well, um, my undergraduate, undergraduate degree, I was studying medicine, um, pre-med at the University of Toronto. And, you know, I came from a very small town. I come from northern Canada, from a place called Sault Ste. Marie, there's almost no Jews there, very little Jewish education. So when I went to University of Toronto, I suddenly had the opportunity to learn more about Jewish stuff for the very first time. So um, you, grew up, you grew up unaffiliated largely? Yeah, completely. Virtually completely. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Okay, go ahead. So I joined Jewish fraternity. I started meeting with rabbis on campus. I was on the board of Hillel, uh, Israel Advocacy, you name it. Everything I was doing in my spare time was Jewish stuff because I loved it. And I really hated the, all the science stuff from pre-med. And so it kind of dawned on me one day that I don't actually have to be a doctor and that I can actually do all the things I'm volunteering to do anyways and get paid for it. And I'll never have to work a day in my life. So I kind of just jumped on board. I said, great, let's do it. At what point did you find Or Sameach? And what was that experience like? And what were you, I guess to say, what were you really looking for when it came to your Jewish experience? And why did you end up honing in on this? Um, or Sameach actually found me. Um, I, to this day, I'm not sure how, how they got to me, but... I met a campus rabbi named Rabbi Jacoby, to whom I owe a huge debt of gratitude when I was in university at the very end of first year. Um, my second year university invited me to go on a little spring break vacation with him and some other students, and we went to Yeshiva in Muncie, also called Or Sameach, but not actually affiliated with uh, the original Yeshiva anymore. And then when I came back from that, I had such a great time learning the Yeshiva for the very first time. I was kind of raring to go, and out of the blue, I got a call from Or Sameach in Israel. And again, I have no idea how they got my name and number. Um, they said, hey, you want to come back for a, uh, a, a two-week trip in the summer? I said, yeah, let's do it. Great. Even though I'd never been interested in Yeshiva before in my life. And so I went on the JLE trip. And within the first, I think, two or three days, I just wanted to go home. I couldn't stand it. I wanted to get out of there <laughs> really fast. Um, but I decided to give it some more time. And you know, I was learning great things. And I really enjoyed the rabbis that were there. And eventually it became a little more comfortable. And I think, I mean, I tell my students all the time, all the real growth in life is when you're outside of your comfort zone. And so I got a little more comfortable. And at the end of that trip, they said, you know, there's not too many Canadian guys in this program. Maybe you want to bring some friends, come back again for free. I said, great, free trip to Israel, let's do it. And so in the winter, I took a bunch of my friends from the university campus to come to Orsamea, come on another free trip. I said, great, you know, I came to Israel for free in the summer, came to Israel for free in the winter, Done, seen Israel, been there, done that, done the yeshiva thing, it was great. But on the bus ride to the airport, when we were all done that winter trip, there was two rabbis sitting at the front of the bus, Rabbi Adler and Rabbi Geffen from Orsameach. And they said, John, when are you bringing some more guys? I said, you know, honestly, I've had a great time. I've learned a lot now. I've kind of been there, done that. 
He said, um, but just give us dates for like the summer. Tell me what days in the summer would be good for the next trip. I said, and probably at the very end of April, beginning of May would be good. And they looked at each other with this look of just un- not understanding. And they opened up their calendar and said, oh, okay. So between the end of uh, Pesach and Shua sometime, perfect. And it hit me t- like a ton of bricks. I was like, oh my God, these guys actually don't know the calendar. <laughs> these guys are actually living their lives Jewishly. There's so much more going on here. And I said, I got to come back. <laughs> and then when I realized that there's a lot more to learn and there's a lot more to see and that this is like for real and this actually impacts your life, that's why I made a commitment to Kikon back and learning as much as I could until I kind of came to some conclusions myself. So at what point then did you start to figure out that this was going to be your real career path? Well, when I was graduating my undergrad, I ended up um, kind of splitting my time between Israel advocacy and kind of Jewish communal work in general and, and learning plus, you know, studying. Um, and so I kind of had a decision to make. I had to figure out, do I want to go into the Israel advocacy Jewish communal side of things or do I want to go down like the rabbinic road and Truth be told, I had a job in Israel advocacy. I was the uh, national director of uh, campus development for an Israel advocacy organization. And I had a job offer from them from when I was graduating. And North Samantha gave me a better one. <laughs> I said, great, I'll take that. And then you're saying, the- you're saying in terms of financial, it was more, it was more lucrative? Um, that was part of it. And it was also just, it was kind of more independence and more responsibility. And then my rabbi on campus also, you know, kind of kept learning with me even after I was done my undergrad and I was in my master's, kept learning and learning. And then I got to the point where I said, you know, I just want to be a rabbi. I looked around me and I saw, you know, whose job do I want out there? And I said, I want to be the campus rabbi. That's it. That's amazing. What, what spoke to you about that? Like what, what made you really like cement in? Was it the relationship you had with him? Was it the impact that he was having on you? Like, where did you get that? Oh yeah, that's what I want to do. I mean, I never really thought of it in terms of relationships, although kind of in hindsight, I guess it was. Um, for me, it was more intellectual than anything else. I really loved learning. I really loved knowing kind of more than anything else. That feeling of ignorance disappearing, you know, when you realize, oh my gosh, I don't know something and then feeling, hey, hey I actually do know something. Uh, part of it could be ego as well. I like knowing more than other people. <laughs> so being a rabbi kind of helps with that. And I really like teaching. Uh, I've been a teacher for many years. And so being a rabbi gives, kind of gives me that ability to, to go out there and share the information I have with others. So that's Okay, we're going to go two separate directions. Let's go the first direction first, I guess, is have you found now that you've been doing it as a professional for three years, have you found that those things that initially drew you into it are true? Are you finding that they're more difficult? Are you finding that the job is, has things that you didn't anticipate? Or is it really like you are living it and loving it? You know, I, I pray every single day, obviously, as a uh, religious Jewish man. And I always pray for my family, super important. Um, pray for my own personal development. And one of the things I always pray for is to be able to keep this job because I, I love every minute of it. I mean, obviously there's gonna be the paperwork and the boring things they have to fill in and the frustrations and the ups and the downs, but I, I just wanna be able to do this forever. And uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how long it'll last for. I hope I have a job with Orsamech for a very, very long time. Hope I can keep affecting students for a very long time, keep expanding and bring more students to Israel. It's a big part of my dream. Um, so yeah, I'd just love to do it forever. That's unbelievable. Do you find when it comes to the world of Israel advocacy, and because this is something that's obviously very near and dear to all of our hearts, that that the Jewish world as a whole is looking at a largely 
rapidly, and I, I don't know if uh, Canada is the same way, but a largely disengaged and unaffiliated uh, population. And everyone's trying to figure out, you know, how do we reach them? Are you finding, obviously, in terms of your own life that, I don't want to say the word religion, but inspiring a person spiritually is going to lead to Israel advocacy? Or do you find that Israel advocacy will inevitably, will eventually get someone to spirituality? Why, why is it that you focused on this one path and not the other path necessarily of being involved in influencing for Israel? I mean, I think they're both really worthwhile causes. I think that the apathy of this generation is affecting both of them totally. I think a big part of it is just the, the smartphone generation where people are just staring at the screens constantly. And then the day is really kind of like a drug addict, you know, they understand there are more important things in life and their longer term happinesses, but that short term buzz of seeing the next, you know, being on the Facebook or the Instagram or the Snapchat chat, or again, like the next like and whatever they want, that short term desire being fulfilled is much more important to them, unfortunately. Um, so I don't think that Israel advocacy can necessarily lead to spirituality, but of course it could. I don't think that spirituality will lead to Israel advocacy, but you know, hopefully it will. Um, so, I mean, my goal is to really support students in any way they, they want to. So it happens to be, and this could be like a trans like, but a lot of my students are into Israel advocacy, are very pro-Zionist on campus. So I'm fortunate to be able to support them in doing that and kind of fulfill my own desires to do that as well. Going into the situation with the smartphones, et cetera, how have you found in your own life that as the... Um, as the, as the world sort of develops and the more and more is going online, how have you combated that in your own life? And do you feel that Jewish outreach or the kind of work that we do, or now you're doing much more full-time than I am, um, is that the way that things are going? Obviously there is always the relationship, but should there be more focus on utilizing the tools which are now completely kind of taking over everybody's life? I mean, for me, not using a smartphone to communicate to my students would be like not using uh, you know, a pen or a paper to write. I mean, not using a computer, I, that's how you talk to people. And the truth is, because students are so distracted with this technology, the only way to get through to someone is to send them a text message, an email, give them a phone call, leave them a voicemail, and send them something on Facebook as well. So, I mean, I would be absolutely, absolutely unable to do any job without it. On the other hand, in my personal life, you know, I find myself, you know, reaching for my breast pocket like every five minutes to see if the phone buzz is something going on. And I realize that's affecting me. The one time I don't do that is on Shabbos, which I think is really interesting because I think it reflects that in my mind, I go into like Shabbos mode. In Shabbos mode, I'm not interested in cell phones. I'm not desirous for them. I don't want them at all. It's not until after make up doll that I have that desire to go grab them. What I worry about is that for my students who are used to having the cell phones on Shabbos, who are totally addicted to them seven days a week. I don't know how they could become Shomer Shabbos. I really worry about their spiritual growth because of them. That's really interesting. So that's something that I never dealt with with my, I, that was never even a thing that crossed my mind until you just said it. So what, what do you mean? You think that, that more than anything else, the fact that now people are so addicted to their phones is going to be a, a, a huge hurdle, the, or the biggest hurdle uh, for, for becoming Shomer Shabbos? I think so. I'm definitely seeing it with my students who are growing in many, many other ways. And like, that's the one thing some of them just can't put down. It's like trying to, uh, to grow and develop spiritually as a smoker. You know, if you're addicted to smoking, you're smoking. I mean, think about how many times you look at your cell phone a day. A hundred? 200? No, it's a lot more. They've said 2,000. They 2,000 cigarettes yeah, yeah, a day? Crazy. And suddenly yeah. you're going to stop yeah. when Friday comes in? It's impossible. 
So, I mean, Kananahara, you know, I do have some students who are able to kind of shift that. And the big key to that is make sure you're busy on Shabbos, make sure you're engaged in Shabbos. Shabbos is not a day off, it's a day on, it's a day when you're engaged and involved with stuff. But man, as soon as they get home from that Shabbos dinner, you know, I hear from our students, boom, the cell phone's out, they're playing Pokemon Go, they're texting their friends, and it's just impossible. Um, out of curiosity, you find, and, and as I did, I'm sure, that because you're getting so much out of your work, and, and I think that as a society, we are sort of moving more either on the entrepreneurial side or on the side of people that are tremendously emotionally committed to the work that they do. And again, I know that's not everybody, but I think that more and more people are sort of accepting that the factory mentality is sort of ending and that they can really find something that speaks to them. Certainly that's one of the character traits of the millennial generation of which that's you. I, I'm like, depending on how you cut it, that's, that's me sort of, but not really. Um, when we're doing work that we feel deeply um, connected to, it becomes increasingly more difficult to shut that off and to go into the experience of having a Jewish family, which again, as much as it's all part of the same thing, when you are passionately in love with the work that you do, um, how do you find that balance and that ability to sort of pull back and to go into the private realm that is necessary in order to support the family, the marriage, the kids? Yeah, so in truth, I mean, my whole family is involved with Kiruv. So we have a lot of Shabbatons. My kids are on all of them. They love the students, have a great time. My wife works with me as well. She's the associate director. She learns with some girls and she cooks lots of the food and she's very involved in planning and everything. So it ends up being kind of a family affair. So it does become a little difficult to draw the lines. The one thing that helps me is that uh, the way the semester system works is that really kind of from May until late August, uh, I'm not involved really with students much at all. It's mostly just me in my office, doing all the technicals, all the background stuff. And then I'm able to keep like a normal schedule where it's kind of like more of a nine to five, even though practically speaking, I do send, still end up meeting with students every week. It just kind of gives me that flexibility to balance out more. During the semester, um, I go to learn from six in the morning till around 1030 in the morning. Uh, I come home for breakfast and get to see my kids then. And then I go to campus from around 11 in the morning until the 9, 10 o'clock at night most nights. So, and then I go to my office till around midnight or one. So, so I see my kids during the semester about twice a week, plus Shabbos, of course. Um, but, you know, the semesters are limited. They're only technically 12 weeks and usually a week off in the middle. So it's only 11 weeks kind of at a time where everything's kind of going nuts. And so out of a 54, 52 week year, I have 22 weeks where I'm kind of out of it, but we still have shops and we still have breakfast every day. So that's a very important practical thing that, that if you have that sort of a set time to interact with your, with your children and with your family, you know, it's able to sort of, I guess you can shrink the time by creating a, 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 a fixed time that people can look forward to. Is that sort of what you're saying? So that works as a stopgap measure. It works for the 12-week semester. It wouldn't work long-term. It's only because we know that, like, you know, after December 1st, I have a month off of kind of normal life before we start the second semester. And after Pesach, we have, like, three months together. That, that kind of uh, self-sacrifice can work out in the short term. Amazing. So as someone that spent like a decade of their life and you're not so old, you know, so that's a very significant chunk of it in, in the realm of outreach and kind of doing a similar type of thing. How have you felt that you have developed? Um, how have you developed professionally? Who are you sort of looking at? Or do you have that mentor 
mentorship type of a relationship with anybody that is sort of pushing you consistently? I mean, for me, uh, the most obvious development in the last 10 years really has been my education. You know, when I first started doing, you know, outreach work on campus, I was really just kind of recruiting, saying students, taking them, leading them places, you know, introducing them to people, running programs. But I wasn't really able to educate anybody. Um, during that time, I spent five years in Kolal, got four smichas. I really got into the, uh, the learning aspect. And while I was doing that, I was still teaching night seder and, and yeshivas. I was still uh, substitute teaching in some places. I was still going guest lecturing. So I was always kind of had one foot in the door, but my own personal you know, learning was, was definitely the most important thing for about five years while I was in Israel. And now I feel like I have so much more to give to the students. And like I said, I still have about three hours a day where I have a learning period where I'm continuing my own growth and development. And that's the only way to give to others is to be able to keep growing and keep developing. And so my hope is that my own learning, even though it's not the same, obviously, and outside of yeshiva setting, but my own learning here in Kolels, which we have in Toronto, will be able to kind of take me to that next level. So my mentors are people like Rabbi Jacoby, I mentioned here in Toronto. Um, he's worked in outreach for something like 30 years. Um, he also learned in Eretz Israel for about 11 years, and he was also a close Talmud, and so I kind of hope to be able to connect with them. Someone like Rabbi Jacobowitz, Rabbi Jay from Detroit, who's able to be in the field for a long time doing great work. Um, Rabbi Khan in Chicago, another great mentor of mine, who's able to kind of take his love and passion for Claudia Israel and really kind of embed it there in the community and develop and, and make it grow. And then also, I think it's really important to have kind of non-work, so to speak, uh, role models. So I live in a, an amazing community. I have a Rosh Kolod here named Rabbi Bolag, who is an inspiration to everyone around him. And then the, the big Rosh Kolod in Toronto, Rosh Shalom Miller, actually have to go to his house in about an hour. Um, he's, a, he's an unbelievable kayak in the world of Lomdas, in the world of Torah learning, in the world of education. And so I try to, anchor myself and kind of root myself in these people because I realized that the people kind of go full force and only put themselves in that campus life and don't have the balance end up burning out. So I can sit here in Toronto, I can be a Makam Torah, I can consider myself a Kolal Avrech and maintain that identity with my kids that Tati learns in Kolal and I think that will enable me to con continue in Europe as long as possible. And is that what you think the people that are doing it for the long-term have been able to do that they're that they're building up their community as well or i mean that, that i guess the reason i'm asking and and i and i definitely agree with that is that i was very isolated and i found that i did burn out um you know into 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 my career and i couldn't really maintain it and i and i looked at people that have been doing it for a long time and I, and i and i wondered like what what that secret was and again you know there's all kinds of um job growth opportunities, but they're not the same kind of a job. You're not do, working one-on-one -on -one with people. People naturally kind of go into more of a management type of a role, which for me was never terribly interesting. I liked what I did. I liked working one-on-one. -on -one. I liked having those breakthroughs with people in the day in and day out. And so I guess the, the question is, it sounds like from your perspective, you would love to stay doing what you're doing specifically for the rest of your life or for, for a long period of time. Is, is, are there mentors that have been doing that kind of thing? And, and is that what you think is keeping them doing what they've been doing for so long? Uh, so you're right. Someone like Rabbi Khan has moved obviously much more into a managerial position. Um, I don't really know how Rabbi Jacobowitz kind of transitioned. Obviously did have employees, but my mentor here in Toronto, Rabbi Jacoby, is still, <laughs> still doing his thing. Um, and so at the end of the day, 
it really has more to do with anything else than with the donors. If we have the donors to kind of continue us going, that I don't need to kind of start hustling for the money. I don't need to start building the organization to bring other people in, other things. If the the the, the funding organizations, including the yeshiva bodies like Orsamev, for whom I work, but so too from or for Ishtar, as long as they have the money to keep going, as long as they're able to invest in the individual, the individual can continue. But again, as long as he feels balanced. So, you know, like I said, here in Toronto, I've got co-wells, I've got kids' schools, I've got everything I need to live a normal, healthy Jewish life. And so I can maintain that balance and keep going to the campuses, keep teaching the students at infinitum. Going forward and looking into the future, if we can do that, have you seen, and the reason I'm asking is because you have spent so much time in the field already, or is the Jewish world changing? Are the challenges changing? Or is the way that we have to teach having to develop, or is it kind of the same game? I have no idea. That's the big question, Kirov. I mean, I think it's very clear from the numbers point of view that the amount of Jews who are getting engaged with Judaism and going on to lead fulfilled Jewish lives is going down. And this is from speaking to other professionals in, in campus, speaking to NCSY people. This is from seeing Jewish schools closing in Toronto, not the not the Haredi ones where I send my kids, but the, 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 the modern Orthodox or the non-Orthodox schools are closing all over the place. And it's just kind of a trend in the Jewish community, unfortunately. And I remember when I was in university, even before that, people would pay hundreds and thousands of dollars to go a trip to Israel. Now we're offering them a trip to Israel for virtually zero dollars and they don't even want to go. They'd rather go with their grandmother on the trip to Cancun or something. They just don't prioritize it anymore. I'm not sure why. I mean, it could be, there's all sorts of theories out there. Some people think that birthright kind of ruined it because now either a student has just been on birthright, they don't want to go again, or they haven't been on birthright, so they don't lose their eligibility, or they're going on birthright, so they can't go with you. Like people think that once you offer Israel for free, then it kind of devalues the whole thing. And so students are less likely to think of Israel as something important, something they want to engage with because everyone's going for free anyways. It's their birthright, and therefore they don't need to take it. Could just be the smartphones, like I said, people want instant gratification, I don't know. But yeah, it's definitely gotten a lot harder out there. Um, at the end of the day, I think that we do have to maintain the exact same thing that all successful McCarvey have been doing forever, which is trying to make a relationship. As uh, Benson Klatsko always likes to say, Judaism is not a religion, it's a relationship. You have to McCarvey someone to you, not to Torah. Um, so I think that as long as we keep that in mind, we can try to make real relationships with people and show them that we think that Torah is really important, that God exists and he loves us. That's the only way forward. It just might be that the numbers are going to be lower and that's it. So my, my personal philosophy for Kiruv is not, it's not that we need to change the world and that the, ship's a, the world's a ship on fire, we got to save every Jewish soul. I don't look at it that way because unfortunately statistics show that within the next three or four generations, the Jewish world is going to look very, very different. You know, Haredi Jews have seven, eight kids in their families, 0% intermarriage rate. The secular or liberal Jews are having very few kids. They have a tremendously high intermarriage rate. Right now in America, I think it's about 70% intermarriage rate for non-religious Jews. And so unfortunately, what we're seeing is that the Jewish people who are not religiously observant are just assimilating themselves into oblivion. And they're not going to be there anyways in the next few generations. I think our job is to be there for those who are interested in it to be the lifeline for the Jewish people who think, hey, maybe there's something out there. For the individuals, the Yechidim, as we call them, who want to be able to taste authentic Jews and authentic Torah. So I think we have an obligation as enlightened religious Jews to be able to give them those opportunities, whether we end up changing the whole world or not, doesn't make a difference. You know, it's so funny because, and I'm not sure if this is something that bothered you, 
the idea of an enlightened religious Jew coming from, and, and it's, it's so funny because when you make that statement, and I would make that statement, maybe Toronto is different from California. Um, if you think about how far we've come from when we were growing up, and there's the idea that sort of the the or I, and again, I, I could just be complete. I, I am going to just tell you my opinion. Um, you know, I felt because I grew up, you know, very strongly reform. Um, not that that meant I was doing much and we would eat, you know, all, every, everything under the sun and never, you know, you know, went to Shabbat every now and again, drove, of course. Um, and I always felt that that Orthodox Jews were kind of judging and, you know, felt that there was only one way. And it's so interesting because having grown up with that and having grown up again and on a personal level still staying very closely connected, you know, in terms of loving the people, um, I can I can say stuff like that and and it doesn't bother me as much. Do you find that the Jewish world sort of it really holds on to their I'm trying to figure out exactly how to say this. The Jew, the the Jews that practice Judaism non-orthodox, the non-orthodox Jews, do they really hold on to their ideal ideology or can't, is the Jewish world as a whole in Toronto or wherever we are are they saying basically like no, there's really kind of two options. There's like there's the enlightened Jewish way, which is I, I kind of have to go back and just kind of connect to authentic spirituality, or I'm just not going to do it. Or is there still kind of grays and, you know, striations? And I'm like, no, I'm proudly Jewish. I'm just reformed. Are you, are you not finding that at all? And it's just people kind of say, look, I'm, I'm interested in spiritual growth. I'm going to go to the Orthodox guy. I mean, listen, there's a tremendous amount of diversity within Jewish people. Uh, I'm not sure if Toronto is significantly different than anywhere else, but we certainly have Jews from every single stripe here and Jews connected to Jews in many different ways. But at the end of the day, I think there is kind of a line. And the line is kind of, you know, either you fall on one side or the other side. Either Judaism is something that you do because fun is interesting and therefore you do as much or as little as you want. If you enjoy Shabbat dinner, you go every week to the Chabad house, you know, great, I love it. And if I, I don't, you know, I just won't eat pork or I will eat pork or I won't eat shrimp or I will eat shrimp. Or you know, I'll go to services on Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah or not. You know, that's one type. I do what I want with my Judaism. And of course, like there's a big range in how much people will do, but that's the, the ideology is that I do whatever I want because it's fun, it's interesting, I enjoy it, and whatever's not interesting, I don't enjoy it. And the other side of that dividing line, so what you might call the quote-unquote orthodox view or the authentic traditional Jewish view, which is that God actually exists, the Torah is actually real. We have a set of, of guidelines to tell us how to live the best life we can possibly live. We'll strive to, strive to fill as many as possible. No one's perfect. We'll try to do as many as we can, but there's an obligation here, and this is how we can lead, lead a good life. So theoretically, you can have someone on one side of the spectrum who says, Jesus is really fun, I'm gonna do all of it, because I enjoy it. And it's on the other side of the spectrum, it says it's an obligation, it's real, it's true, but there's a whole bunch I don't do because I haven't gotten there yet. And they could be ideologically, diametrically opposed, and yet you have one who is theoretically more observant than the other one. But at the end of the day, either it's real or it's not. Unfortunately, we live in a world of idea of subjective truth. It's true to me and it's true to you. They're both true, a different truth. This is not what the word truth means in English, unfortunately. And the idea of objectivity is being completely lost. But those who believe in subjective truth and who do what they want are on one side of the line, those who believe in objective truth have to ask themselves the question, is it true? And if it is true, great, do as much as you can. And if it's not true, do whatever you want. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm. I. I want to be very respectful of your time. I apologize. I have two more questions. I just because this is like very fascinating for me. So one of the things you had mentioned was that it is a relationship. And the older I am, and the more that I'm involved, you know, now I've whatever I've been doing it for a while. Also, um, 
I am finding less and less about making that ideological push, meaning I completely agree with the idea of the relationships and, and I'm, I'm, I've become, I used to be much more pushy. I'm, I'm, I'm not now. And I even apologize to my students. A lot of times I'm like, man, if you had met me when I was starting in my career, you would have, you know, oh boy. But um, do you find when you set up that, that hard line, because it, it, what you're saying, and, and I agree with it, is that that is really the, the demarcation line. It's a very pointed, profound question. Look, is this true? Is this real? Or is it going to be just kind of come and enjoy and, and eventually we sort of hope that you make that jump? So at what point, again, there, I know there's no like, yes, this is the answer. I'm meeting number three. But how much do you kind of try to compel your students to really engage in that question? And how much are you trying to sort of stay, you know, not pushy, but just let them come and love you and love the life that you have and see the value of it and sort of speak to the, the exact opposite, which is that this stuff all kind of works also for your life. It's more relevant for your life. All the self-help stuff you're reading, Judaism actually has that. It, it really works well. And, you know, health stuff, Judaism has that. And it works well. So like, where do you kind of see that demarcation as, as your job as a rabbi to sort of push that ideological point, which is kind of what, what the, from the way you said it, the, the like tipping point between, you know, I guess you say authentic and non-authentic Judaism. So, I mean, with any relationship, it has to be authentic, right? So, I have this personality. These are my views, how I view the world. At the end of the day, I'm not gonna be able to connect with someone who views the world in a different way. And so, you know, if someone's a type of rabbi who is very much about what Jews can do for me, how much I enjoy it, how it's relevant to everything else, great, they should, they should go that way and they'll, they'll meet students who are like-minded. I'm much more into truth. I wanna know what is real, what is not real. Don't kind of BS me here, you know, let me know what's like, what's really going on. If it's really going on, then it's relevant. It's not really going on, it's not relevant. And to be honest, you know, if I can show you that Judaism has the same thing to say about health as some popular magazines, so go read the popular magazines, a lot more accessible. Judaism has the same, something great to say about uh, love and marriage that you can find a popular book. It doesn't authenticate Judaism, it authenticates the book, so go read the book. So I don't need to prove that Judaism fits with the modern world at all. But I can show students how Judaism is relevant to their lives in and of itself and authentically so. But that's what makes it interesting, quite frankly. But to tell you the truth, and this is what I hear from my best students, if it's not real, and I can do it, Rabbi. I'll just take whatever I like out of it and roll away from it. And that's not good enough for me. So, you, so to answer the question is you drive directly at that, at, that, at that point, and you say that everything else that comes out of that you can find outside of the outside of the religion itself with the religion itself i'm going to really hone in and just give you the unique value of judaism which is the torah the torah learning the torah experience and all of the kind of other stuff that you can get on your own time i'm not saying that you can get all that from other places i'm just saying that just because i can find it in the torah and as well as other places it doesn't authenticate the torah Correct. so when i run for instance my maimonides class i do a 10 part class and I promise students at the beginning, every single class is about relevant Jewish subjects, something relevant to your life. Class about ecology and how we approach the environment. Class about business ethics and how we treat people when we're running a business. We have class about medical ethics and making real decisions about your own healthcare. So everything has to be relevant to them, but it's all within this rubric of, is it true? Because if it's not true, then it's gonna be irrelevant. I love that, cool. And uh, for those of us who are not so lucky as to be a uh, college student in Toronto, how do people find you? How do people hear more about you? How do people connect with you? So we have a uh, Maimonides program going on about nine campuses now. Uh, the big ones are at the University of Toronto, at McMaster University, at Laurier slash Waterloo, at uh, Guelph, 
Um, you can find us at www.ohrcampus.com and you can email me anytime, Rabbi Jaffet, J-A-F-F-I-T, at ohr.edu. Sweet. Rabbi Jaffet, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Rabbi Rob. Good to see you. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.